Episode 6 with Russell Colts. Where meditation meets daily life, this is the Meditation Freedom Podcast. Thank you so much for joining the Meditation Freedom Podcast. Today's interview is going to be with Russell Colts. He is a psychology professor at Eastern Washington University. Russell is also founder of the Inland Northwest Compassionate Mind Center and founder of CompassionateMind.net, which I'll link to in the show notes. And I thought it'd be nice to give him an introduction by way of one of his students, because he's making a big difference in a lot of the students' lives by talking about compassion and teaching them meditation in the classroom. So I checked out his Facebook page and there was a post by one of his students that was talking about how she was becoming aware of how quick and easy it is to judge each other these days. Some of the people in her life were talking about how someone, because of the way they were dressed, must not have a degree and and similar kind of mean-spirited comments and judging. So the student had been in Russell's class and In the class, Russell talked about how compassion needs to be a lifestyle, not a technique that we selectively apply. And clearly this really sunk in with that student because she said, I could not agree more with this statement. How are we truly being kind, loving, or compassionate if we're selectively distributing it? We're all different and that's okay, but I don't think that should mean we need to limit the kindness we share. So clearly Russell is having a really positive effect on his students So Russell's current research and professional work is focused on compassion-focused therapy, or CFT, and the application of CFT in working with emotional difficulties, particularly anger and attachment disturbances. And besides working to improve emotional difficulties with uh, compassion-focused therapy, they also seek to facilitate positive change in individuals and communities by facilitating the intentional development of compassionate states of mind and compassionate action. And Russell has also authored a number of books, and the three I'll mention here are The Compassionate Mind Approach to Managing Your Anger, Living with an Open Heart, How to Cultivate Compassion in Everyday Life, and this book was co-authored with Tupton Chodron, who is a very well-known Buddhist nun, author, teacher, and abbess of the Shravasti Abbey Monastery in the Inland Northwest. And then the third book is The Compassionate Mind Guide to Managing Your Anger, Using Compassion-Focused Therapy to Calm Your Rage and Heal Your Relationships. And he co-authored that book with Paul Gilbert. So with that, we get right into the interview. This was recorded at his house, and he also has some dogs. And at one point, uh, especially uh, when we're talking about stress and Lots of fragmentation of attention. The dogs decide to bark, and I think some other things. The phone started to ring at the same time. It was kind of an enjoyable moment because it emphasized the point he was making. So with that, here's the interview with Russell Colts. Thanks so much, Russell, for joining me in this podcast. What brought you to meditation-type practice? I'll try and give you the short version. For, for several years... I had taught mindfulness as a, as a kind of a technique in the context of various psychotherapy models. So there are models like dialectical behavior therapy, which use mindfulness. Um, but I think like a lot of people who begin using those techniques, 
I tried to teach them to my clients, didn't really practice it a whole lot. I, I kind of tried things out here and there, but didn't really get into it too much. Um, and then quite a few years ago, my son was born. And uh, one of the things when I'm teaching, whenever modeling comes up in the kind of the behavioral section of any class, uh, I always uh, tell my students, if you want to be a good parent, become the person you want your child to be. Right. Cultivate in yourself the characteristics you be want change. to pass along to them. Yeah, right. so that because that's how children sort of uh, develop is by learning, uh, by observing their caregivers and how people right. behave and how they interact with the world. So, for example, if we tell our children that it's very important to be kind to people and then we're rude and nasty with the wait staff at the restaurant, what message are they getting from us? So, you know, I'm someone, I sort of came into the world with kind of an irritable temperament. So irritability and anger, which are the, the it's no coincidence that, that those are the books, that I write books about how to work with <laughs> anger. Um, those are the emotions that I sort of struggled with growing up in an early adulthood. And although I had done very well in that regard uh, for, for several years before that, and had really worked with that stuff well, um, when you have a kid, it amps up the stress and things like this. Sure. And I had observed myself not following my own advice. I observed myself sort of modeling things for my son that I didn't want him to struggle with and that I, characteristics and behaviors and that I didn't want to pass along to him. Right. And so when I, when I observed that in myself, that was very troubling to me, you know. And at about that time, I had picked up a book uh, about His Holiness the Dalai Lama called The Wisdom of Forgiveness. That's by Victor Chan. And um, I remember as I was reading that book, it really stood out to me that here was an example of the sort of model I wanted my son to have. I mean, not, you know, the leader of a world religion, but uh, the compassion and the kindness and the calm and the, you know, those sort of characteristics were the things that I would hope to model for him. And at that point, although generally I'm not, a, 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 and have never been particularly a religious guy, I thought, well, you know what? Here's somebody like this, and here is a, uh, a group of people that have, over thousands of years, worked to create a path to, right. to cultivating these sort of characteristics. Mm -hmm. So I sort of took my scientific skepticism aside, you know, any, around the religious aspects of it, and I threw myself into Tibetan Buddhism. I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue this path because clearly the outcome is something that I, I would like to kind of bring into my own life. And so I did that and for three years I, I kind of threw myself into Buddhist practice and so I read tons and tons of books and I meditated for about an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, uh, many days, almost every day, um, and went to lots of retreats and uh, teachings by various Buddhist masters, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and uh, went to a local center. And after about three years, I kind of came out on the other side. And it was really at that point that I recognized that it was the mindfulness and the compassion practices that for me had been life-changing. Mm -hmm. And so those, those meditation practices I learned in the context of Tibetan Buddhism, and um, they're also being used increasingly in the context of, of psychology and working with psychotherapy clients. And there's lots of scientific data coming out that supports uh, their use. Right. And so that was sort of my introduction. It was both kind of personal 
And then it became professional because it, at that point I became aware that I couldn't continue to work. I felt even like ethically as a psychologist without bringing in the stuff I had learned from my meditation practice into my work as a psychologist. Hmm. Um, and at that point, that, that's kind of how I find my way to Paul Gilbert and Compassion Focused Therapy. And So there's a scientific scaffold, scaffolding of understanding that supports the use of these uh, these strategies for working with the mind that have been around for 2,500 years, you know. Yeah, that's great. And were there particular practices like, you know, that you you were able to apply in daily life that would maybe short-circuit one of those arising emotions that you're talking about? Well, you know, there, there are sort of two things, really. Um, I think there were things that can help, like, in in the moment. So mindfulness meditation is is very helpful in sort of training us to notice movement in the mind and to notice uh, emotions and thoughts sort of as they arise. And that's really core to working with things like anger and irritability. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we really get caught up in those, it's like we get swept up, and by the right. time we realize we're swept up, it's already... we're, we're way down the road. Right. So one way that really helped is by helping me recognize those the anger and irritability when it, when it starts to come up sooner, so then I can work with it. Right. And for me, if I can just go, oh, there it is, look, I'm... I'm really angry right now. That almost solves half of it right there. In fact, actually, there's uh, there's scientific literature that shows shows that if we merely name an emotion, the neural firing associated with that threat emotion reduces just by the naming. Yeah, it loses its power. Yeah, it shifts our perspective from being in it to being sort of outside as an observer, mm-hmm. shifting into awareness. So that was the first thing. Instead of being identified with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Instead of uh, being fused with it and stuck mm-hmm. in it. Um, the, the, the other... Th- thing really was that the meditation sort of gradually transformed my experience kind of throughout life so that on the whole I found myself irritated a lot less often. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just dealing with it when it came up, but it actually came up less often because you know a lot of the things that irritate you if you're working to cultivate compassion as an ongoing sort of way of being in the world, the extent to which you succeed to that, you, you don't get as irritated by things because your mind automatically moves to seek understanding right. rather than judgment. Mm-hmm. And anger and irritation is really driven by these judgments we make. Oh, that's bad, that's wrong, it shouldn't be this way. And if you can switch out of that's bad, that's wrong, it shouldn't be this way to, to really looking deeply and saying, well, how does it make sense that it's happening like this? What's going mm-hmm. on here? Let me look deeper. What would be helpful? So when, our, when we begin to sort of habitually respond with those sorts of questions, uh, a lot of the irritation never gets the opportunity to take hold. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's funny if my wife and child were hearing me say that. They'd say, really? Because we don't see all that at home. <laughs> there, <laughs> right. there, there are always going to be some situations, and the closer they are to you and the more important they are, the easier it is to yeah. be reactive and the more you have to rely on, okay, now that I see it here, what, what do I do? You know? Right. Yeah, it's, it's tricky business. We've got brains that are biased towards processing threat. You know, it's very easy sure. for us to feel threatened. And so, you know, learning to work with them and to, to kind of accept that, okay, this is, this is what's going on. What do I bring to this? What would be helpful? You know, yeah. it takes some effort. And, and where does insight play a role in transforming that anger and, and things like that? Like insight by realizing the other person may not be so much different from... Well, I I think it's hugely transformative. I mean, you know, 
what, you know, anger and various threat emotions from, I'm a scientist, so I speak about this from a scientific perspective. Mm -hmm. And from that perspective, uh, those emotions were designed by evolution to simplify things so that we can make a rapid response. So sure. anger is about attack, right? Fear is about get the heck out of here. And so there's not a lot of nuance to that. Right. So, so when someone threatens us, we naturally tend to reduce them to a threat. This is the person who is getting in my way or who is threatening me or who is, you know, whatever it is that I don't like. Mm -hmm. And if, if what compassion and what slowing things down and having some insight into them, the moment we can see another person as, you know, just like me, this is someone who just wants to be happy and to not suffer Right. And they're pursuing their goals the same way I'm pursuing my goals, and maybe those seem to conflict at this moment. Um, at that point, I think a lot of the the threat stuff dissipates for us because when we replace it with understanding, we see that actually where they're coming from makes a whole lot of sense. And it takes away some of the fear of that other and that unknown. Yeah, because we begin to recognize that what they're doing, uh, and, and this is true most of the time, not all the time certainly, but most of the time, Actually, usually what they're doing has nothing to do with me, mm -hmm. right? They're just doing their stuff. Right. And, and, but, but the threatened mind tends to impose all this stuff, like they're doing this because they want to inconvenience me or hurt me or whatever, when in reality they're just doing what they're doing, and we're creating all that stuff on, their, on our side. Yeah. So if we can just have some insight into why... How might, from their side, how might their behavior and their feelings make sense? Again, it's shifting from judging and labeling to understanding. Yeah. Yeah, I know my teacher likes to explain it almost in an interesting way, too. He says it's changing your perspective from a self-centered perspective to a multi-centered perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It, because, you know, as long as we're just in, if we define everything that happens in the world in terms of how it relates to me, well, we're not going to have very good of yeah, an understanding. Trouble, right? Yeah, we're going to be in trouble because suddenly everything that doesn't go my way feels like an attack. Well, it's not an attack. It's just lots of times in a human life things don't go your way. Right. You know? right. <laughs> so, right. so I think it is. I think it's getting away from this, you know, interpreting everything from your view. But we're, we're sort of evolved to do that. Right. You know, so it's it, it takes some practice to shift. But with practice, you do. It's just training your your mind to work in a little different way. Yeah. And, and uh, in your classes, you bring some of that in your class too, right? With your students. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm rather uh, fortunate in that I'm a psychologist and things like mindfulness and compassion are catching fire in my field. And so, you know, it's, it's the timing historically in psychology is perfect for the melding and the bringing this stuff, it's not a stretch. I mean, there's this, we're, that we're, there's all kinds of scientific data that is, is kind of rolling out that, that shows that this stuff is really helpful. And so it's a completely legitimate thing to do, to talk about in a psychology classroom. And I actually, at Eastern, I have a course on compassion-focused therapy, which is a, a form of therapy based in evolutionary psychology and uh, the, the neuroscience of how emotions work in our brains. And uh, it involves compassion meditation, and it involves mindfulness meditation. I've got a seminar on mindfulness, which is very experiential. 
-hmm. I give people some of the scientific basis of mindfulness and what we're talking about. A big part of the seminar is how do we be mindful? How do we learn mindfulness practices? The students are meditating in the class because there's just no other way to learn about it. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's really delightful. I get to, to do that in that setting and it's, it's a completely valid thing to do where if I was, you know, a literature professor, uh, that would be a great stretch. (laughs) (laughs) So it's nice. Yeah. And do you see any uh, effects on the students or the way it affects the, the whole classroom? Yeah, you know, I think so. I think so. I think that you get a much greater depth of discussion in any setting when people feel safe. Mm-hmm. When people kind of recognize that what they say isn't going to be judged or dismissed um, and, and it feels safe then people are much better able to think reflectively and to share what they think and to have dialogue and to not necessarily agree mm-hmm. because they know there's a container there and they're not going to be attacked, they're not going to be dismissed, you know. Um, so I think that's that's really helpful. That's great. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice, you know. And what happens is when people begin to do that and begin to feel safe and kind of observe the feelings that come up, I mean, you know, even like a course like statistics, you know, you got a student who's terrified of statistics, but if they can look at that formula, recognize, wow, I'm getting anxious because I have this whole life history of experiences that have taught me that I'm not good at math. Well, maybe that's true, maybe that's not. Yeah. What if I were to slow down my breathing a little bit and come back and see, do I recognize anything in this story problem? Yeah. Right, or maybe even ask for help if I need it, you know. And just that, that feeling of being safe and uh, being having things you can do to center yourself if you need to can be very helpful. Right, and so they, they may even solve the problem that they formerly couldn't have because they were stuck in, in a part of the brain that wouldn't yeah. allow them to... Yeah, well, you know, the problem is the, the students, the, the secret to, to an introductory statistics course is that it's actually, mathematically speaking, in terms of the formulas, it's actually not that difficult. Some of the concepts are a bit tricky, but the math isn't difficult. Uh, the vast majority of students who struggle with uh, the statistics in my class are not actually struggling with the material at all. They're struggling with the idea that they can't do it, right. that they've somehow from their history learned, uh, and then you know, it becomes this mountain that it, they have to get around before they can even actually work the problem itself. So like a self-limiting belief? Maybe? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and of course, there's one of the most threatening things, uh, threatening ideas we can have is there's something wrong with me, mm-hmm. you know. And once that's in there, it's it's very distracting. Right? It's very our emotional brain responds very much to thoughts like that. So, but if people can recognize, okay, I'm, I've got this idea, but this idea may or may not be true. Let's see. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what the meditation teaches you do. To, to recognize these contents of the mind, these thoughts and feelings, as mental experiences that aren't necessarily true, aren't necessarily real, right. but they're experiences that you know come and go in the mind, and so we can notice them and let them go, and then come back to the task at hand. You know. Yeah, that's great. So there's a real expanding of the mind possibilities going on there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I really think when it comes to meditation. Um, and mindfulness and compassion practices particularly. Um, I think that if we practice them as like techniques, like now I'm going to sit down and do this, I mean that's good. 
and we, you know, the way we learn to do this is through by dedicated meditation practice and things like this. But I think for it really to be most beneficial, at some point it needs to come off of the meditation cushion and start to infuse how we, the process of living our lives. Mm-hmm. Do, do you see how I mean? Right. Um, like, so in, in, instead of it just being something I do during this time, to begin to transform how we are able to observe and be aware of our own experiences and, and to relate to our struggles and suffering. Yeah, so a process of integration that takes Yeah, place. absolutely. Now, the nice thing is I think that if you actually keep uh, up a regular meditation practice for, for any length of time, that naturally begins to happen. Mm-hmm. And it happens behaviorally and it happens neurologically. I mean, we know this. We know that ongoing meditation practice changes the brain, and particularly in areas that are pretty useful for things like emotion regulation. Mm-hmm. Is there any other benefits that you can, that you've noticed, uh, maybe with yourself or your students, as a result of that of these practices? You know, I, uh, yeah, I, I think there are a lot. Um, one of the biggies that stands out for me is that I think um, we live in a world that moves very quickly these days. We have all this fancy technology, right. so we're constantly interconnected. We're inner. We're connected via technology all the time. You know, when I grew up, we had like four television channels. Now, I think your average household probably has between one and 300. Um, and and you've got people with all sorts of technology and they're texting and they're talking and they're, you know, tweeting and they're doing all this stuff. And all that's wonderful, you know, it makes life, it makes certain things that we need to do very convenient. But I think in some ways what we're doing is we're training our brains and our minds to expect and almost require a certain very high level of stimulation. Right. And I don't think we're designed to function at that level all the time. And, and I think this can create a lot of stress. And um, I think... Uh, we're not designed to function like this all the time. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I find is that when I teach uh, meditation, one of the things people really struggle with at first is just doing nothing more than sitting quietly and breathing and focusing on the breath. Yeah, because that's hard as it is. It, yeah, and, and you, you see people, they get a panicked feeling about it. And then there's a sense of why I'm not doing anything. I should be doing something. What a waste of time. We've trained our brains to expect this level of stimulation so that it can be very difficult and sometimes very aversive to slow down and just sit quietly or just sit and listen to a piece of music mm-hmm. or just sit and do like one thing, like only one thing because we're, we live in this world that's filled with constant stimulation. And to me, there's, there's a lot of significance to that. Uh, to me, if, if, you know, if you sit down and you try to just sit there and sit quietly for five minutes and you can't do it, you get really uncomfortable, I think that's a sign that you know, your brain's been trained in a way that's not very helpful. And so part of that process is just desensitizing to that and learning to slow down. And you know, as Ram Dass famously uh, named his book, to be here now. Right to learn to do one thing in the 
right now with the full focus of one's mind in that activity, in that place. And maybe that's listening to a talk, or maybe that's reading a book, or maybe it's listening to music. Maybe it's having a conversation, but to be fully present here. And I think that that, I think probably, you know, generations ago, that was just kind of how it was. I think the pace of life was slower, and people did tend to live that way, but I don't think it's that way now. Mm -hmm. I think learning to slow down and to be fully present in whatever you're doing is tremendously powerful. Yeah. And I think it's powerful for doing whatever it is you're going to do really well. If you want to be really good at something, I think we have to learn to be able to do that and not divide our attention. And I think that if we're constantly racing to maintain this level of stimulation, it, it, it's a very stressful way to live. Right. Well, it's like multitasking became an outcome of that whole fragmented attention thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And so we've got, you know, lots and lots of people in the world who you know, get up and they need like four shots of coffee to get going in the morning. And then they take sleep medication to go to bed at night because their brains are constantly yeah. And and so what if we learn to slow down? And I think just that, you know, is hugely helpful. And do you have some students that come back to you and say, well, I just can't do it or they give up after a while of trying? And what do you well, encourage them to? Well, you know, I actually, that doesn't happen so much, but um, so it used to. And what I learned is that uh, when you've got someone who, who is used to this, you've got to orient them on the front end that actually this is probably going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And But there are things you do. I think that if, if uh, anyone who's motivated, if it's introduced well, can, can meditate and can do that. Um, I think the key is to start very small. So with, if I'm teaching mindful breathing, you know, we may start with a minute or two minutes right. initially and then go to five minutes. And I also orient people, you know, one of the biggest impediments, I think there are probably hundreds of thousands of people out there who tried meditation, mindful breathing, watching the breath, mm -hmm. coming back when your attention wanders. And, you know, I think we initially start out very naive and we think, oh, this should be very easy. You know, I mean, how hard? You just watch the breath. How hard can that be? Well, if you've tried it, it's actually terribly difficult, right? Because right. we've got these minds that naturally just careen off in all sorts of directions. And so what happens is people sit down and they expect that they should be able to do this. And then their mind, they observe their mind careening off and they think, oh, there's, I can't do it. Or they, they get frustrated with themselves and they give it up because it becomes really aversive. Yeah, so maybe they have expectations like their mind is going to be like a clear sky, you know, if they just do yeah, it a few times. Yeah, so. absolutely. Or they should be able to do it. It's naturally, natural that there's this sense of failure. And particularly in the West, we move into self-criticism so easily. Um, so the way I, I put it to people is I say, okay, what you're really doing here is you're training several different capacities. You know, one is, you know, by, by focusing your attention on the breath, and just noticing when a thought or emotion takes you away or a sensation or distraction, just noticing, oh, I'm distracted, and then coming back to the breath over and over. You're really, just that simple process is doing at least three really important things. Yes, one thing we're doing is learning to stabilize the attention mm -hmm. and to, to put it, to move it, and to kind of rest it where we want it to be. So that is one component, but it's only one. The second thing we're doing is we're training ourselves to relate to mental experiences as mental experiences. Oh, look, that thought distracted me. Back to the breath. 
oh look that feeling distracted me, back to the breath. So we begin to relate to thoughts and feelings as mental events, as sensations, words and pictures in our mind, and not necessarily the stuff of reality. And the third piece that is really important, uh, I think, helps us to dispel problems with distractions. The third thing we're learning is to notice movement in the mind. By, by noticing when our thoughts take us away and coming back to the breath, we're training ourselves to notice movement in the mind. If someone comes to me for psychotherapy and they're a finger, fingernail chewer, you know, they chew their fingernails and they want to stop, the first thing I have them do I either, you, back in the day before smartphones, you give them a little ticker and a counter, you know. And what I have them do is just count. Every time they catch themselves chewing their fingernails, just record it. Put a little mm -hmm. notch in their notebook or count it. And what you're doing is it, after a couple days of that, suddenly they begin notice as they start to bring their hand to their mouth rather than five minutes later when they've been chewing. Mm -hmm. They're training themselves to notice when they begin to, to move in that direction. And so... The distractions that come up in mindfulness meditation, when we're watching our breath and then a thought comes up, and every time we notice, oh look, I'm thinking, back to the breath, we're training ourselves to notice movement in the mind. Mm -hmm. And from this perspective, those distractions aren't a bad thing at all. They're, they're an opportunity to learn to notice, oh look, I got distracted, oh look, I got pulled away by a thought, come back. And so I think if we can recognize that not only does pretty much everyone get distracted during meditation, but that actually these are opportunities to notice movement in the mind. Suddenly, they're not failures anymore, Right. if we can really connect with that. And I think it makes it easier to continue. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, that the real trap is people think, oh, I should just be able to stay with the breath, and then they discover that they can't, and they think, oh, this is very, they get up frustrated, and they get upset, and then they give it up, you know. Right, right some of the projects that you're really passionate about that are related to meditation and mindfulness? The entire focus of my career right now is, is really on compassion-focused therapy and helping people learn to use compassion-focused therapy with their psychotherapy clients and helping clients or helping everybody uh, learn to use compassion and compassion-focused therapy to work with emotions like anger or sadness, anxiety, depression, these sorts of things. And all of that work involves mi learning mindfulness, and it all involves learning to cultivate compassion and shifting into a compassionate perspective. Mm -hmm. So that, that really is, is kind of the focus of my career. And um, you know, I've written a book applying compassion-focused therapy to anger, and Venerable Tupton Children and I uh, have a book out uh, in the U.S. it'll be called An Open-Hearted Life, which is on cultivating compassion in everyday life. It's, it's part and parcel of my entire professional life at this point. And do you see any, uh, in the future, any new projects on the horizon that are similar to that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm currently right now working on a, a book that'll be called CFT Made Simple. So it's a, it basically would be a manual for clinicians who want to learn compassion-focused therapy and how to use it with their clients. And we're trying to do some, uh, some more research on the, the compassion-focused uh, anger groups and things like that uh, to demonstrate its effectiveness. You know? And that's one of the, the things that's driving the, the integration of meditation and psychology is that the science is beginning to be there mm -hmm. around 
how this works and the fact that it does work, the fact that it's helpful. And that's very important. From a scientific perspective, um, you know, it's nice that someone says, yes, I think this is really helpful, but we need, we need some data to demonstrate it. Sure. Right. Yeah. And so, so that's really where I'm at. How do we refine these treatment approaches? How do I help clinicians learn to use them? And how do we contribute to the, the scientific literature that helps us understand how this all works and supports the, the use of it? Yeah, and do you see it then bleeding over like into institutions and corporations in, in how they... Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because I, I get that sometimes. I have, uh, so I had a, a community college on the western side of Washington State ask me to come and do a talk on CFT for their yearly uh, employee meeting. Mm -hmm. And um, at, at EWU, uh, they've, they've got me given a, a, a talk for the Global Lecture Series th this fall. And there's, there's increasing interest, I think, ar around this. You know, the important thing for me, compassion is one of those things, which very nicely is, is kind of a popular idea right now. It's kind of opening up. And mindfulness did the same thing about 10 or 15 years ago, kind of right. inserted itself into the culture and is getting much bigger. And I think that can happen in a good way or it can happen in a bad way. There are lots of misconceptions about compassion, too. Some people think compassion means just being sweet and nice all the time. Right. Yeah. You know, and compassion and compassion meditation is really about developing the courage to come face to face with suffering. Compassion mm -hmm. is really being sensitive to suffering and being motivated to help in the face of that. And so... I'm, I'm committed to try and kind of help the spread of compassion work in the culture, but to, to have it uh, happen in a way that's enduring. So it's not a fad that happens for a year or two, and then we're on to something else. Yeah, so there's like a, a wisdom and discernment component uh, part of it that's, that you're yeah, promoting. Yeah, yeah. And this, quite frankly, is very tricky in the culture that we live in, because compassion is a hard sell if you're a corporation that has profit as the bottom line and the only line. Right. And so, for example, there is a lot, not to be too political about it, but there, there's a lot of corporate money that strongly influences the way our government works right now. So it's kind of hard to pursue compassionate agendas when, when people are thinking about dollar signs and not human impacts of, of the policies. And so I think we really, it would be really nice if you uh, could get people a stronger focus of compassion in like government and in and organizations, and um, I think that would facilitate some changes that would make compassionate policy much more likely to happen. Mm -hmm. But it's tricky. It's tricky because you know sometimes the 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 way of doing things that's best for people isn't the cheapest or the most profitable way to do it. Right. And so we've got to find a way to temper the completely understandable goal to make as much money as you can. I mean, you know, of course, we live in a capitalist nation. Of course we want to do that. But um, there are some corporations, for example, that have discovered that, you know, when they treat their employees better, their employees are more productive. Yeah, and their triple. profit margins go up, you know. I don't want to name check any, any particular corporations, but they're out there. The, the information's out there. And so... To, to be able to point to those models and say, actually, we can have both. We can have compassion, we can have mindfulness, we can have that stuff, and you can make money. Right. That this is actually something that's possible, I think, is important. 
Well, I think corporations probably look at sick leave a lot and, and how you can impact Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Well, sick leave and health care benefit payments. Right. Because when people are, med people are meditating, when they're mindful, when they're treating themselves with compassion and getting some exercise and taking care of themselves, they're a lot healthier. Right. Whereas if you're stressed out or if you're hostile all the time, there's loads of data that says that compromises the immune system, it affects mortality, it's, it affects all sorts of things. So, right. yeah. And it, and it brings that into work, that people bring that to work. They can. Absolutely. And so instead of actually focusing on the work that they're doing, they're focusing on the stress that they're feeling and the perceived threats that they're, you know, yeah. they're perceiving. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of room to put it in the culture and um, I'm kind of hoping that it infiltrates. And the nice thing about compassion uh, and particularly compassion, but mindfulness too, is that when there's something about people who, who practice that stuff, it spreads. Yeah. So if it's you're interacting, in it's a, contagious in a, in a good way. If you're interacting compassionately with others, they're learning a new way to be in the world, and they're more likely to uh, to interact compassionately with others. And you can actually, there's a guy named Christakis who does these models showing connections of people and how it just wow. spreads out. Yeah, you know, pro-social stuff spreads out and, and the nasty stuff does too. Uh, so, you know, it's about what kind of world do we want to build? What do we want to give to one another? What do we want to spread? Yeah. And uh, before we go into, you know, how people can find more about you, do you have like a final tip or, or something that people can practice real easily, you know, whenever they have a, an arising destructive emotion or something that comes up. You know, the easiest one when they notice, I think the most powerful psychological technique we have is slowing down the breath. In compassion-focused therapy, we call it soothing rhythm breathing. I mean, I could, I could talk for an hour about this question you just asked, but if it was one thing, mm -hmm. when we notice oh look, I'm getting really anxious, or I'm getting really angry, or I'm getting whatever. The first thing I would ask someone to do is take 30 seconds to a minute, slow down the breath, take four to five seconds on the in-breath, hold for a moment, take four to five seconds on the out-breath, really slowing that out-breath, and focusing on the sense of slowing. Slowing down the body, slowing down the mind. And then, once you've done that for 30 seconds or a minute, maybe consider how it makes sense that you would respond that way. And then maybe ask yourself the question, what would be helpful in this moment? What would be most helpful in, as I deal with this situation? If I were here supporting someone that I really cared about and really wanted to help, what would I want them to understand? So that would be like That's the great. thing. But the, the breathing, and the breathing, you know, it doesn't make everything going away. Go away. Slowing down your breath doesn't make anything disappear, but it gives it some space. It softens that threat stuff just enough that we've got some room to work with it. Yeah, a little more workable the situation. Yeah, yeah. 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 It kind of shifts us from being in it to being able to ask those questions. You know. All right, that's great. Well, thanks so much, and. So if folks want to find find out more about you and your books and things like that, where would they go? Well, I've got a website. It's not a very good one because I'm not very good with uh, technology, but it's it's compassionatemind.net. And so 
that's it. So CompassionateMind.net. My books are all on Amazon, of course, and uh, in, in some bookstores. Um, and I'm at Eastern Washington University, so uh, folks can always email me uh, either through the website or in my address at uh, EWU. Great. So. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Russell and you learned some things from a different perspective, a more scientifically grounded perspective. I find that always very interesting and helpful to see that validate a mindfulness and meditation practice. And for each of the books that Russell talks about, there'll be a link on my website and you can just click on that and it'll take you to Amazon if you want to purchase those books through Amazon. I wanted to thank also a couple of folks who left a review on iTunes. That means a lot to me because uh, it's very hard to leave reviews on iTunes if you've never used it before. I just wanted to thank two usernames on iTunes, iTunes Helper and SysK, who left a great review. Thank you so much. And then I want to thank Becky Lambrecht from Borrego Springs, California, and Mary Neighbor from Spokane, Washington. Thank you so much for trying to leave a review and then letting me know about it that you couldn't leave a review because you got all kinds of iTunes complications. So thank you again, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week or evening or wherever you are. We had a great sunset, by the way, a couple days ago, and I'm going to leave a picture on the show notes for this particular show, which is going to be meditationfreedom.com slash 006. I'll leave a, a picture and, as well as a, a time-lapse video so you can see what kind of beautiful sunsets we have down here in the Anza Borrego Desert. Until the next episode, take care. Thank you so much for joining us on the Meditation Freedom Podcast, where meditation meets daily life. Daily life.